Before we get into our message here this morning, uh, I will invite you to to bow your heads and your hearts with me, and let's come before uh, let's come before the Lord together in unity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for your undying love for us, your mercy, your grace that you uh, are so willing, uh, willing to to give to each and every one of us. Uh, We pray that you will forgive us our sins and that you will continue to show mercy. We pray for angels from heaven, angels that excel in strength to be sent to minister to the needs of those who are weak and to every one of us, to protect us from our enemy. It is a great enemy. We cannot defeat him. But we trust Jesus and, and, and your promises that are found in your holy word, and we claim them. Uh, we can rest assured, as we read in Psalms 512, that you will surround us, you will compass us uh, with a shield. And uh, we claim that promise. And uh, Father, we pray this morning uh, for our loved ones. We pray for our children especially, uh, those who are in the world. And uh, maybe right now just don't listen to mom and dad who who point them to Jesus. We pray that the Holy Spirit uh, will so arrange things in their life that they can but see Jesus and hear the truth, and we pray especially that they may accept it and be forgiven. Father, we pray for those on our prayer lists. We ask that you be with our parents, those of us who still have parents. We pray that you will bless them. Bless our fathers, the fathers of this land, that they may do thy will and being a right example for you. And Father, I pray that you give me the words to speak. This series that that we've begun... In looking at the sin issue, uh, I pray that we have discernment. Give us of the Spirit to see the truth and to make sin so objectionable to us, so hateful to us, that uh, we will choose never to sin again and bring glory to Thy name. I pray for this humbly, Father, in Jesus' name, for He's worthy. Amen. Amen and Amen. Well, friends, this series, which I've entitled The Sin Issue, uh, we'll be looking to define, uh, ultimately, what we're trying to do here, we're trying to define, biblically, through God's Word, define sin, and there's some aspects to that. I know there, we'll get to the, the biblical definition of it, but we want to look at these things in its aspects So we want to define sin, and we want to know how to overcome it. Uh, Which, frankly, is needed information for each one of us. If we are to be able to make a reasoned, um, you know, a reasoned decision for or against earning its wages. (laughs) And it's something that we do earn. It's very, very interesting. Paul said in Romans 3.23, and we, so many of us who've been Christians for a while, we're kind of familiar with the, the road to Rome, aren't we? The Romans road, so to speak. Romans 3 and verse 23, Paul said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he also said, if you, you go three more chapters there, Romans 6 and verse 23, he says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin pays its slaves, friends, exactly what they've earned. And it's very interesting, that Greek word there for wages, originally it, it, what Paul really is talking about, he was talking about uh, a compensation for soldiers when he, when he speaks of wages. And it was considered at the time what, what soldiers were given as compensation for being in an army. So what they've earned. And, and through time here, it's kind of evolved just a little bit to our English word, wages. What we earn. And the consequences of sin. If we choose to sin, 
the consequences of it are, are consequences that we have earned by our choices. Ezekiel 18 and verse 4 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Friends, there is no mistaking. If you go by God's word, you read God's word, there is no immortal soul that flies out there. Sin has wages, and it's death. And and I want to be clear here too. Paul there speaking in, in Romans, when he's talking about death, he is referring particularly to eternal death. He's talking about the second death, which I'm going to get into to more detail here in just a moment. But that's what he's talking about. So knowing that the consequences for sinning is eternal death, we better be sure what sin is, right? So that we can choose not to commit it and thus uh, lose eternal life. Now the last time we were together, I asked the question, and, and, uh, in fact the title of that message was The Sinfulness of Sin, but I had asked the question, how do we discern the sinfulness of sin? Do you remember, some of you who were with us last time? And I shared the answer. And the best answer that I could find, really, is found in a a devotional book called The Faith I Live By. It was page 60. And, And notice this statement. She says, The exceeding sinfulness of sin can be estimated only in the light of the cross. So according to this inspired statement, where is the only place we can rightly estimate the exceeding sinfulness of sin? She says, in the light or the truth of the cross. So by looking at the truth about the cross, you know, the death of Jesus, we will learn how terrible sin is. We will then see the sinfulness of sin. And I shared this as well. This is from the Desire of Ages, pages 685 and 693. It says, upon him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dreadful does sin appear to him. So great is the weight of guilt which he must bear that he is tempted to fear it will shut him out forever from his father's love. That's a key. Put that in the back of your mind. That's a key. We're talking about what Jesus paid, the risk was to be shut out from his Father forever. Okay. She says, Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, he exclaims, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Remember he said that to his disciples there in the garden. And then page 693. Could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic host as in silent grief they watched the Father separating His beams of light, love, and glory from His beloved Son? They would better understand how offensive in His sight is sin. Remarkable statements. And when I read such things, friends, and I've studied this theme, I'm convinced that there are really few of us who who understand the true meaning of Christ's suffering and death on the cross. We have only a, a dim comprehension, I think, of the conflict he passed through and the kind of agonizing death he experienced and what caused it. I mean, of course, we're not going to necessarily understand it completely, are we? But I don't, I, I, I'm just not convinced we, we even come close. Why was it even necessary? And that's a key question, isn't it? And I really believe that if our eyes were opened to grasp the true significance of Christ's sacrifice, there would be no more you know, flirting with the devil, no more cherished secret sins. Our weakness would be turned into courage and victory as we choose not to sin again. But you know, when you read through the Gospels, the the writers of the the Gospel, they struggled really to explain the mysterious, first of all, the incarnation of Jesus. That's why it's called a mystery. And 
as well the atoning death of the Son of God. We get glimpses that boggle our minds, but still we are only scratching the surface of a subject which will will continue unfolding for all eternity. That in itself tells us we, we're not going to completely understand this thing. The life of Jesus as a human being and the death of Jesus for our sins. Now I want you to notice what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 5 to 8. He said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, what he's saying there is, he didn't uh, yearn, he didn't have an ego to be God. That wasn't his character. That's not God's character. His God's character is one of unselfishness, see? So he didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. And we'll get to that again in a moment. And verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In these words here, Paul's trying to describe so that we can understand, in some way, the condescension of Jesus from the throne to the manger and then to the cross. And we try to explain what exactly Jesus did, but there's not one illustration that could, could really portray what He did for us. We try. We get close, I think, maybe. Paul here, he was trying to get close to it. But we can't grasp the glory and the position from which Jesus separated Himself and came into this condemned, dying human family. And I think this is why it's so difficult for Christians to grasp the atonement, to grasp what Jesus did there for us at the cross. We have no idea. Well, let me put it this way. We have a very vague idea of what Jesus left in heaven, all he laid down to come here and become a human being. And this may explain why so many treat the events of the cross so casually. It just it makes me think it's because they just don't understand what their salvation cost, the Son of God. But it's only when we know the cost of something, isn't it, that we begin to appreciate it? You know, we, have, we live in a culture today where, where we see the results of coddling children. Do we not? If they understood the cost of something, I'll, I'll give you an example. When we were raising our our kids and they would, we would be out somewhere maybe we were on vacation or maybe we were at a store or it, it didn't matter they wanted something really bad and they would come to me you know dad can I get this such and such and it was you know it wasn't something that was really good for them or whatever it was you know and, and, and you know it may be you know, uh, well dad it's only like $75 or whatever you know whatever amount and I would look at them and I'd say you know how many hours I have to work to pay for that I was trying to get them to understand that money just doesn't grow on trees, see? And, and more times than not, we see in, in our society, and like I said, we see the results of coddling the children and spoiling children, that why is it that they don't respect the things that they have? Because it's been given to them, they haven't earned it. They don't know the cost of it. And today they really don't care. Right. I was I was teaching them. You see, this is how many, and and it just kind of tickles me a little bit. And I I know it got through to them because I knew when I was teaching them, one day when they have their own family, they will come to see what I was trying to teach them, and they figured that out when they got their you know got their own jobs and they were earning something and they were they were tempted to buy something. They go, oh wait a minute, man, that. That took me two days <laughs> to earn that. Do I really want to spend that money on this trinket or this thing? 
And so it's only when we know the cost of something most times that we begin to appreciate it. And so when thinking about the death of Jesus, most people hold the typical martyr view. And that's what's pushed essentially by the other biggest church in the whole world, the Catholic Church. That's what a crucifix is. A crucifix has Jesus still on that cross, friends. A Christian cross, when it's shown Jesus, is off that cross, isn't he? Because we know he's in heaven, but Catholics keep him on that cross. And so they have the typical martyr view. But Jesus didn't die like all the thousands of others who were crucified on crosses around the walls of Jerusalem. And there can really be no comparison between Christ's death and any other death. If you stop and think about it, not really. You see, Christ did not die because of the nails and the spear or the physical abuse. No amount of of blows or pain could have produced the agonies that he had on his cross. Others were enduring the same torture. But none of them died from the same causes that took the life of the Son of God. You see, his death was different. Well, Pastor Joel, how was it different? What kind of death did he suffer? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. The Bible says this in Hebrews 2.9. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now think of that for a moment. You see, He died my death, and He died your death, and He died every other person's death. Well, how could that be? Will we not have to suffer our own death at the end of our days? Yes, we will. And therein lies the mystery and the wonder of what He did for us, friends. He did not take our place in passing through the first death. He experienced the second death for every soul who has ever been born. And what do I mean by the second death? And let me tell you, this is very important for us to understand when looking at why and what Jesus did for humanity on the cross, which will help us to see the sinfulness of sin. Okay? Now the Bible speaks of three kinds of death. First it speaks of, well, they're not in any particular order really, but I put them in this order. First it speaks of a spiritual death. And that's a person that is in an unconverted condition. You know, Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. Uh, John talks about it in 1 John 3. And this is one who has never accepted, you see, the gift of, or has rejected the gift of God, that gift of Jesus to, to humanity. Now the second death that the Bible talks about is a temporal death or what I will refer to as the first death. And Jesus describes it as sleep. Again, you look at John 11, Revelation 2, Revelation 12, other places. But the third death that the Bible speaks about, I'll call the second death. In fact, the Bible calls it that. And that's when you're burned up in the lake of fire. (laughs) And you cease to exist in any form for the rest of eternity. You're no longer around, ever, and will never come back. And so to really understand the price of the cross, it is important that we distinguish between the first and the second deaths. And only then will we be able to understand why God the Father turned away from His Son on the cross, which helps us to understand more fully the sinfulness of sin. See? Jesus had to be treated as though he were guilty of every terrible sin that has ever been committed. And under the weight of that condemnation and that guilt, remember in the garden, he sweats great drops of blood and he fell fainting to the ground. 
And on Calvary, when He was shut off completely from the presence of His Father, what did He say? What did He cry while He was tormented? My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. And so we come to our Scripture reading for today, Romans 5.12, Paul said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. When we look at this, several questions are raised by what Paul's saying here. If only one man sinned, why did all have to die? Doesn't that come to your mind? Do people have to pay the penalty for other men's sins? Well, let's think about it for a minute. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he, was rep- he represented every person who would ever be born. This is before sin entered the world. He represented every person. You see, he was the head of the human race. And so he stood before God as though he were every man. And that time, at that time he truly was, wasn't he? For he was the only man, right? But God placed Adam on probation. And the test was simple. And it was direct. God said, obey and live, disobey and die. And here in Genesis 2.17 is what God said. He said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In the original, really, it's, it's probably better rendered, Dying thou shalt die. Adam's continued existence in Eden depended upon what? Obedience to God, didn't it? His happy future was conditional upon not eating from the forbidden tree. But he did not meet the condition. And no provision had been made to remove the penalty or to lighten it. You see, the issue was pretty clear cut. Obey and live, disobey and die. So when Adam disobeyed God, he not only lost his right to the tree of life, which resulted inevitably in his death, and in the passing on of death to his descendants, but he also became depraved in nature, thus lessening his strength to resist evil. And so Adam passed on to his posterity, you see, a tendency to sin, and a liability to its punishment, which is death. By his transgression, sin was introduced as an infectious power, you could say, in human nature that was antagonistic to God. It was at enmity with God then, see? And this infection has continued ever since. So from the moment sin became a fixed fact, every human being who would live became subject to the first death. I mean, think about it. There's a reason why they were no longer allowed to eat from the tree of life. They were no longer able... To be immortal. And you had immortality as long as you could eat from the tree of life. That's why they were removed from the garden. In fact, when we think about this, if God had not intervened and already had a plan of redemption, Adam and Eve would have experienced eternal death at that moment of disobedience to God. Bam. Done. Adam's probation, you could say, ended when he sinned. As far as that first offer of life was concerned, it was finished. He had forfeited all hope of life under the the proposal God had made. So now only death awaited him, a hopeless, final death. And if God had done nothing more, that's the way it would have ended for Adam and all of his descendants. Well, if God had not shown mercy, friends, and grace right at that moment, there would be no descendants. <laughs> right? But immediately after Adam's sin and before the sentence was fully executed, God introduced the plan of salvation through the seed of the woman and gave Adam 
and ultimately his descendants, that's us, another chance. Let's look at Genesis three fourteen and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put, what is that word? Enmity. It means hatred. God's going to do it. God's going to place this. Enmity. It's a supernatural thing that God does. See, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so eternal life became conditional upon acceptance of a Savior who would bear man's penalty through his own substitutionary death. And so there was a new hope that was set before Adam and all his posterity through this second arrangement. But it did not alter, friends, the consequences of failing the first probation. You look at the biblical record. Adam died after living for another 930 years. But because of his faith in a coming Savior and his continued obedience to God, it would not be the final eternal death. And that brings us to a very crucial question. How could God uphold His integrity by carrying out the penalty of the first failure and still hold out the offer of a new life to everyone through another probation? And that was the argument uh, that Satan had against the plan of salvation, see? He argues that it's unfair of God to have such a plan. And why does he argue it? Because Satan is condemned to die the second death in the lake of fire. But Satan had his chance to return to God, and he rejected it, along with a third of the other angels. So how could God uphold his integrity, again, by carrying out the penalty of the first failure, and still hold out the offer of a new life to everyone by providing another probation? It's really quite, uh, quite remarkable. I mean, God met that problem in such a simple and amazing way. He would let men live their limited lifespan and then die. That's that first death, remember, that Jesus calls asleep. And that first death would take care of the consequences of failing the first test in Eden. Then through the provisions of the plan of salvation, all the members of Adam's family, whether good or bad, will be brought forth from their graves. At that time, it will be clearly seen and acknowledged by all that those who are to be eternally lost are in such a condition solely as a result of their own sinful choices. Thus, they've rejected the choice to obey and live, see. They will not be able to place blame upon Adam. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus talks about these, this resurrection where all will come from the graves. He says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So those who have done good, who have by faith accepted you see the righteousness of Christ and made it their own, they'll come forth to the resurrection of life. Because as Revelation 20 verse 6 says, on such the second death hath no power. See? But those who've done evil, who have rejected the righteousness of Christ for their own righteousness, and who have not obtained pardon through repentance and faith, they're going to come forth the resurrection of damnation. And they will receive the penalty of transgression, that final wages of sin, the second death, friends. And these resurrections 
They happen at different times, of course. The righteous at Christ's second coming and the unrighteous at His third, a thousand years later. So the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, they begin to make some sense, don't they? The plan of salvation involves a resurrection of all men from the first death so that they can be placed beyond the effects of Adam's sin. Let's think about it. Because this is necessary so that they can be judged on the basis of their personal actions and choices during their probationary life. Adam died the first death because he ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. Not because of anything he did after that. But if, after the judgment, Adam is found worthy of the second death, it will not be because he ate the fruit. He confessed that sin and that was forgiven. But because of the other sins that he committed, after that experience, which were not confessed and forgiven by God. Do you see? Some may charge God with being arbitrary and cruel to bring the wicked back to life again only to destroy them in the lake of fire. Have you ever thought that? Why why even resurrect them at all? Why not let them remain under the power of that first death? Well, God can't do that. And here's why. He has to meet the conditions required by the second probation. See? The first death is not the punishment for sin for any of Adam's posterity. They die or sleep because they cannot eat from the tree of life and live forever. So all sleep in the grave until the sentence for each one's life, good or bad, is carried out for eternity. You see, justice requires that each individual be held accountable only for meeting the conditions of his own salvation. So without a resurrection, no such judgment could be made. And no just retribution could be given. Friends, it's not a wanton act on God's part, but a fulfillment of the standards of His divine justice. See, that's why all will have to be resurrected. And knowing the difference between the first and the second deaths, that helps us tremendously in in determining the sinfulness of sin by looking at the cross of Jesus. And so, another thing we need to look at uh, is we need to examine the roles of the first and second Adams. Has that ever confused you? You read about Jesus as being the second Adam? Just as Adam in the Garden of Eden represented the entire human race, so Jesus, the second Adam, would also represent every man. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Notice what Paul says. He says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So just as the first Adam's experiences affected all those whom he represented, which was his whole whole descendantary line, (laughs) Paul tells us that the experience of the second Adam will directly affect all men. So Jesus, the Creator, became human. And he stood before God as though he were every man. See? This is why Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. That's why he could write that. In Romans 6.4 he said, We are buried with him by baptism. As Christ was raised up, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so, the life of man is deeply associated with the events of Christ's life because he became the second Adam and represents all humanity. Because Jesus came to redeem the failure of the first Adam. And because of that, he had to do it in the same flesh that mankind possessed when he was born. 
That's why Hebrews talks about it so much. Hebrews 2.17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Let's think about this. If he had possessed any supernatural advantage over his brethren, meaning human beings, if he, if he used any supernatural power to conquer sin, you know what that would have done? Jesus would have given support to Satan's charge of injustice. You see, God had been accused of requiring an obedience that was unreasonable, that was impossible. I came across the, this little quote out of the devotional the other day, this past week. It's from the book Lift Him Up, page 181. It says, It was not His purpose, speaking of Jesus, it was not His purpose to abolish by His death the law of God, but rather to show the immutability of its sacred claims. It was His purpose to magnify the law and make it honorable, so that everyone who should look upon the cross of Calvary with its uplifted victim should see the unanswerable argument of the perfect truth of the law. Christ came, you see, to disprove the devil's accusation by meeting the requirements of God in the same human nature that any man may obtain through faith in, in our Heavenly Father. And it was that perfect victory of Christ over sin and death which provides the basis of our salvation, friends. All the descendants of Adam lay under the influence of his weakness and failure, making it impossible for any of them to obey the law of God. In that dying, condemned family of Adam, which we belong to, they were doomed to perpetual struggle, doomed to defeat. But you see, the victory of the second Adam, Jesus, opened a door of escape for the family of the first Adam. Think of it this way. Let me see if I can explain it maybe a little better. The first Adam passed on the results of his sinful experience through physical birth. You know, the fleshly or the carnal weakness, sin and death. That's what he passed on. The second Adam passed on the results of his sinless experience through spiritual birth, partaking of his divine nature and then victory over sin and and inevitably eternal life. All the effects of the first Adam's failure are completely counteracted by the second Adam. But there is a small difference. You can join the new family only by being born into it spiritually. See? You cannot earn a place. You cannot purchase a place in the family of God. You're not physically born into the family of God. You can actually reject to be a member or accept the conditions to be a member. It's your choice and your choice alone which family you want to belong to. The family of death, which is the first Adam, or the family of life, the second Adam. And through faith in Christ, see, a new creation takes place. And it lifts man out of the hopeless, carnal state of the family of Adam. Is it making sense? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, physically that's impossible, isn't it? <laughs> it has to be spiritual, right? So therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And there are incredible promises that are included in this new spiritual relationship, this new family. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also may be also glorified together. <laughs> so let's think of it this way. We talk about being co-heirs. According to my parents' will, my father's been gone for 
five years this year, so my mother still lives. But according to, to my parents' will, when my mother passes into that sleep of the first death, her living children become joint heirs of her estate. A joint heir is one who holds equal rights to all the family estate. Now think of the estate of God. What does God own? <laughs> right? The holdings of God, I mean, they include galaxies and universes in space. And by faith, we try to grasp hold of the reality, you know, Jesus and I and you, those who are in the family of God through that spiritual birth, share alike in all the spiritual riches of our Heavenly Father. It is an incredible thought that can be a reality for you and I, friends. Whatever Jesus gets, we also receive. Paul describes the boundless resources of that new Spirit-filled life uh, in these words found in Ephesians 3.19. He said, "...that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God." Friends, when I read that, I'm like, what human being can comprehend this? <laughs> the great, loving God who made us and who gave up His only Son to die for us because of our sins now wants us to have everything His Son has and also everything that He has. It's incredible. But that's just one aspect along with the assets of a king, we also inherit the family name and the family resemblance. We even begin to look like our new father and our elder brother, you could say, of Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 10, he says, and have put on the new man, when you experience that spiritual rebirth, he says, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now think about this. In the beginning, Adam was made in the image of God. Isn't that true? And he was called a son of God. In Genesis we read, in Genesis 5, it says, in the likeness of God made he him... And Adam lived 130 years. Notice this. It's subtle, but notice it. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness. Doesn't say in the likeness of God, does it? Like father, like son. When Adam was created, he looked like God. But the resemblance was lost through disobedience. So Adam's son did not look like God. He looked like Adam. But under the new birth, man begins to look like the one who created him, Jesus. And when you think about that, you know, you go, well, is this resemblance real or is it imagined? You know, does God create only an illusion to make it seem that man's being restored to the divine image? Or, or does he provide for the change to actually take place? Well, there is a theological debate as to whether God's righteousness is only accounted to man or whether it is truly imparted as well. Those who feel that man is only accounted righteous, they don't believe that he can really be obedient to God, that he can really overcome sin, that, that you can really live a holy life, even if you're in Christ. But I believe that Paul's words are very clear there in Romans 5.19. He said, By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And that Greek there means an ongoing life. It's a sanctification process. Not just justification. So along with the family likeness, this new spiritual birth brings deliverance from the second death. See? Christ didn't change the first uh, death penalty for Adam's failure under the first probation, but He did abolish the second death for all those who receive Him as Savior and Lord under the second probation. 
And this was made possible only because he submitted to suffer the horrible penalty of the second death in place of man. For us, friends. He became sin for us. And voluntarily accepted the punishment which sin demands. And so, as Hebrew 2 says, on the cross he tasted death for every man. Was it easy for Jesus to have such an experience? Was it easy for the Father to withdraw from His beloved Son and treat Him as though He was guilty of the most atrocious blasphemy and crime and sin and abomination? You know, I was thinking about this and I thought, how can we as human beings even really come close to comprehending such a thing? Such a sacrifice made by our Heavenly Father. Such, such a, a willingness by His Son to do it. How, how can we even come close? And then it was brought to my mind that there was one man. <laughs> there was one man and only one in the world that has come close to understanding that intense suffering of the Father and the Son in that situation. Only one man mentioned in the Bible that has that experience. That man is Abraham. Abraham gave up his only son as well. It's the only man. He got a taste of it. You see, because Abraham had initially failed to believe that God could give him a son from Sarah's dead womb... He was subjected really to another test concerning life from the dead. So God told Abraham to slay his only son Isaac on an altar. And, And now Abraham, he had no doubt about the validity of the command. He was a friend of God. And he'd learned to recognize God's voice. He knew it was from God. There was no way for Abraham to comprehend the reason for this command. I mean, think about it. It's like, what? It just didn't make sense to him. The promise had been confirmed repeatedly that Isaac was the seed through whom the Messiah was to come. Now he was asked to take the life of that child of his old age through whom the world would be blessed and redeemed. How could the Savior come through Isaac if he was killed on the altar? By the time father and son reached the base of the mountain, Abraham's faith had resolutely claimed God's resurrection power. That's what he believed. He believed he was going to wind up sacrificing his son, then he'd be resurrected. That's why in Genesis 22.5 he says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. That's what he told his servants. Now we have to think about time and place here. No resurrection from the dead had ever occurred. But Abraham believed that God would fulfill his promise concerning Isaac's seed. It's the only thing that made sense to him, see? And that's logical, isn't it? And as Abraham lifted the knife over his his son, and his son was submissive, Isaac recognized what it was all about, and he submitted to it willingly. And as Abraham lifted that knife, friends, he was meeting the most severe test ever faced by a human being. And no one except Jesus would ever hold the destiny of a world in his hand as Abraham did at that moment. Let me tell you something. It was more than the test of fatherly affection. By killing Isaac... Abraham was depriving the world of a savior. I mean, the knife was actually placed at Abraham's own throat too. God's unfailing word had assured him that no Messiah could be born without Isaac. You know something else this points out to us? The risk involved in the plan of salvation. 
Abraham was taking the risk of trusting God. Think about that. God was taking a risk in allowing His Son to, become to, to come to this planet and become a human being. This wasn't all just some fairy tale made up. There was an actual risk. When Jesus died on that cross and said, Why hast thou forsaken me? He believed he would never be resurrected, friends. And he still made the choice to do it. And even though Abraham's hand was stayed and God provided another sacrifice, he really did give up his son that day on Mount Moriah. He experienced all the pain, the heartbreak, and horror that attend the death of any only child. That's your descendantary line. (laughs) The only one you have. And holding the power to save his son's life, he would not exercise it. He trusted God. And God intervened only after it was fully apparent that Abraham would not hesitate to offer up his, you know, Isaac as uh, God had commanded him to. That experience brings the love and sacrifice of the atonement within our understanding, I think, and that's why we have it in God's Word. It's, for, it's to give us understanding. So now we can grasp a little better how the Father and His only begotten Son suffered at the cross. The cost of our redemption, I hope, becomes clearer. But now, we need to consider another aspect of the price of the cross. How does the death of one man, the second Adam, provide forgiveness for all who have sinned? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Remission means forgiveness. The question is, how does Christ's death make it possible for Him to forgive sin? And this brings us to the crux of all we've learned so far, friends. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer the second death in order to acquire the power to forgive sins. Did you catch that? It was necessary for Jesus to suffer the second death in order to acquire the power to forgive sins. And remember this always. All forgiveness is rooted in an act of substitution. Whoever forgives another person must actually substitute himself for the one he forgives and be willing to suffer the consequences of the wrong that was done. For example, if I forgive someone a debt, I must be prepared to suffer the loss of the amount of that debt. If I forgive, oh, somebody gives me a punch to the gut, I must be willing to suffer the pain of it without requiring the one who gave it to be punished. Forgiveness relieves the offender from receiving what he legally deserves. You see? The forgiver accepts the consequences himself in order that the guilty one can go free without punishment. Thus there is clearly a substitution of the innocent for the guilty in every act of forgiveness. So only two courses are possible, okay? Either justice will exact the prescribed penalty or there must be forgiveness from the offended one. And if forgiveness is extended, the forgiver will have to accept the consequences of the sin and suffer it in place of the guilty. Now the penalty for sin is death. So in order to grant forgiveness to the sinner, Jesus must be willing to bear in his own body the same punishment that the broken law would demand of a sinner. Is it starting to make some sense? Thousands of criminals were crucified in the same physical way that Christ was. They were nailed to a cross. But they suffered only the bodily pain of that first death. They sleep in the grave, right? Awaiting one of the resurrections, either the good or the bad. 
Jesus experienced the awful condemnation and separation from God that the vilest of sinners will feel in the lake of fire. He became sin in order to allow the full wrath of the law to fall upon him in exactly the same way it would fall upon the lost. And friends, I, I mean, there's no other way we can explain that mysterious anguish of spirit which surrounded Jesus in the closing hours of his, his life. From the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus bore the accumulated sins of mankind on His breaking heart. Have you ever heard Jesus died of a broken heart? Not one ray of light was permitted to penetrate the blanket of total alienation from His Father in Heaven. In order to take the place of guilty sinners and to provide forgiveness... There could be no difference in their penalty and his penalty, see? And I hope no one makes the mistake that, in the understanding that the father did not suffer equally with his son in that separation. The divine forbearance of God in allowing wicked men to torture his son to death. Oh, friends, that's the ultimate proof that he loves us with the same love he loved Jesus. It's incredible. But the choice he faced was very simple. He could spare the Son or he could spare us. There was no other choice. You see, because his law had been broken. That law which is holy. That law which is perfect. And that law which is a reflection of his character. So it could not be changed and it cannot be destroyed. The penalty had to be paid. And the father loved those who had broken his law. But he also loved his son. So let's look again at the cross. God looked upon those wicked men as they spat upon Jesus and hit him in the face with their fists. They were unworthy to touch the hem of his garment. And they were mauling him to death. You know, God held the power in his hand to smite those men into oblivion. Poof, gone. But if he'd done that, you know what the results would have been? Not one human being would ever live again. Adam, Abraham, Joseph, Daniel. Every other child of Adam would be lost for eternity. You see, their resurrection depended wholly upon the death and resurrection of God's beloved Son. In His omniscience, God must have remembered every individual face and name, even of those who had not yet been born. So God turned away from His Son, Jesus, and allowed Him to be crushed to death under the weight of sins He did not commit. Even the sun hid its face from, from the scene. There was darkness upon the land. And the earth shuddered. There was an earthquake. And Jesus cried, It is finished, and yielded up His life. And the price of our redemption had been paid. Was it too high? That's an interesting question, isn't it? You know, sadly, for billions and billions of people, it is a wasted sacrifice. But what about you? Now that you see, maybe, and I hope and pray a little clearer what it cost, what your salvation cost, do you find yourself responding to Jesus? Did you realize that love which brought Jesus to His death on the cross was such that He would have made the same sacrifice for even one soul? And I need to remind myself every day that God not only so loved the world, but He so loved Joel. 
that he gave his son. The entire plan of salvation revolved around the application of his death to individuals, friends. It is personal. We've been given a second probation, must choose which family we want to belong to. And God's not going to force our conscience. The choice is ours alone. But it's a choice that has to be made. One of the most wonderful statements in the Bible about the atonement is found in Hebrews 12 verse 2. It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. How could that... It boggles my mind, friends. How could that terrible experience on the cross have any joy connected with it? What was the joy that was set before Him? He hung on the cross with the anticipated joy of opening wide the gates of paradise to welcome us into His kingdom. It was love for us and the desire to be with us for eternity which led Him to endure what really is unendurable. I've thought about this. You know, someone might ask, is one soul worth such an infinite price? Well, you have to look at the big picture. You have to consider that in in the truth of eternity. And the answer is yes. Consider the fact that one redeemed person will outlive all the combined years of Earth's total population. Eventually, in eternity, the life of that one person will outstrip by, I don't know, a million, billion times all the lifespans of all the inhabitants of this world put together who die in that lake of fire. In this sense, one saved person represents more life, more accomplishment, a greater fulfillment than all the lost people combined. And Jesus must have recognized that truth every time he looked into the face of a man, a woman, or a child. In even the most degraded human being, he saw a life that could memorialize his love for longer than time had been computed. And with these glimpses into the the real costs of Calvary, how could anybody so lightly esteem the mission of Jesus to this earth and the cost? You know, you can be that soul who will bear an everlasting witness to the love and grace of our Savior. Think about it, friends. Never has so much been provided for so little. By a single step of faith, we may exchange the deadly birthrights of the first Adam for the unsearchable riches of the second Adam, co-heirs with Christ. And all we have to do is surrender to Him. In a moment of surrender and acceptance, we begin to share the life He deserved because He was willing to bear the guilt, condemnation, and death we deserved. What an exchange. And like I said before, that's going to be the theme of our study for all eternity. It boggles our mind. And as ages roll by and, and we, uh, we will continue to get a new insight into the nature of God's love and that sacrifice that was made there at Calvary. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And as I close, I want to share this with you from the devotional book, Lift Him Up, page 178. And in looking at the cross, remember, it is the light that we learn from the cross where we will see the sinfulness of sin and learn the sinfulness of sin. Notice this, lift him up, page 178. When we know God as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become Hateful to us. So friends, when we really survey the cross, we begin to realize the sinfulness of sin and its results. 
it will become hateful to us. Make no mistake, understanding what sin is and the sinfulness of it has eternal consequences. It does. That's why we're taking a very close look at it. And friend, let us pray for this understanding. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we again thank you so very much. What more can we give than ourselves to the one who paid for us? And we do that right now. We give our hearts to you fully. We pray that you will accept our our plea for forgiveness and show us mercy. And that you will pour out your love into our hearts that we may be created in your image and not the image of the first family. We thank you so much for Jesus, that penalty that he paid so that we may be saved. Let us not make that sacrifice something that he did in vain for our life. We pray in Jesus' name.